Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and in particular welcome to episode three of our investigation into the remarkable story of the wreck of the Andrea Doria, the magnificent Italian passenger liner that went down off the coast of Massachusetts in July 1953. Episodes one and two both included accounts from people who were actually on board. As a historian I love being able to say that. So make sure you listen to that, and in particular to episode two, where I got to interview a man called Mike Stoller, something of a legendary songwriter who helped to pen some of the most famous songs in the history of rock and roll, including Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock and Stand By Me. I was slightly surprised I was able to get any questions out at all during that interview. I just wanted to sit there and clap. But today we hear a man who has the most intimate knowledge of the wreck itself, John Moyer. John is a very well-known underwater explorer and has dived over 120 times on the Andrea Doria wreck, which, as you will find out, is no mean feat. And I tell you one thing I've learned from speaking with him, and that's that I will most certainly not be attempting to dive on this wreck. It's deep, it's dark, and it's exceptionally dangerous. I wouldn't advise anyone to do it, in fact, and the best thing you can do is to put your feet up, turn up the volume and listen to us talk about it. So without further ado, enough from me. And as ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the brilliant John. John, thank you very much indeed for talking with me today. Uh, Sam, it's my pleasure. Well, let's hear a bit about your background. How did you get into diving in the first place? Uh, well, um, yeah, I was interested in diving ever since I was a kid. Uh, I can remember in grammar school, going to the library, reading books about scuba diving and treasure hunting. And uh, back in the, this would be in the 60s, there was a TV show called Sea Hunt, very popular here in the United States, uh, all about a guy named Mike Nelson going scuba diving. I had all kinds of adventures. And then, of course, uh, Jacques Cousteau had his series on TV. So, yeah, in the early days, uh, 
that's what really got me interested. Um, my mother and father were both in the Navy in World War II, and they met in the Navy. Uh, so maybe that has something to do with it, too. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Always being inspired by your parents, I quite like. Also, you're talking about the 60s there. It's quite easy to forget the fact that the ability to scuba dive properly as we understand it is actually quite a recent invention relatively isn't it It hasn't been around forever at all right yeah uh, um it got developed in, during world war ii in the, in the 40s and then sport divers a little bit of sport diving in the 50s and then uh in new jersey off the jersey coast in the 60s it got developed um I took my basic scuba course in 1975, and when, when I took that course, I met a lot of divers who had been diving in the 60s and the, and the early 70s. So they were my mentors. Uh, they would go out and uh, dive on wrecks. Uh, they would, typically the, uh, the fishing boats, fishing trawlers, would get snagged on something. And these the early divers would go out on the fishing trawler, dive down, and it might might just be an old barge or a wooden wooden ship, or it might be a big freighter, and that's how they identified a lot of the wrecks. Um, it's interesting how the um, the relationship between maritime history and maritime archaeology does uh, revolve a great deal around fishermen who've been finding stuff for years. And without these people who've been harvesting the sea for its fish, they, we, there are so many discoveries which we would have never come across. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, that's absolutely true. Um, so uh, really, these divers, they're not really discovering the wrecks. The fishermen discover them. Uh, the divers just go down and identify them. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful job to do. Um, give us a, before we talk about the Andrea Doria. Give us a flavour of some of the wrecks that you've been lucky enough to dive on. Um, well, it, of course, off the coast of Jersey, there there's thousands of wrecks. Um, there's um, one. Uh, uh, there's a wreck called the Carolina, which was. Uh, I think it sank around 1914. It was a World War I uh, wreck. It's in about 240 feet. Uh, and uh, that was one of what they call the Black Sunday wrecks. There were five ships sunk in one Sunday, June 2nd. Uh, and uh, so we dove on, on a lot of them. Um, outside of New Jersey, uh, I've been over to Scapa Flow in Scotland. Uh, that was in 1985 or 86. So really not too many sport divers had dove over there at that point in time. Uh, I remember going, going over there. We hired a guy with a, uh, with a fishing boat, and there were four of us. Uh, had a coal stove on board to keep us warm, and he would take us out, drop us off on a wreck, and then come back an hour later and and pick us up. So that that was uh, you know an adventure back then. Yeah. And then uh, probably my other favorite wreck besides the Andrea Doria is the Empress of Ireland in the Saint, ah, Saint well, Lawrence River. We just River. covered that, haven't we? Yeah. Yes. I, I I saw that. And you know it's it's surprising that that wreck really isn't that well known to the general public. Um, 
even in the dive community, I, I, they don't talk about it that much. But in the, uh, this would have been in the early to mid 1990s, uh, we went up there uh, four times. It, it's about 14 hours for me, because uh, I live in southern Jersey, and that's a, uh, off of Ramuski in Canada. So uh, we went out there four years in a row for a week or 10 days at a time. So I, I, I got in about 40 dives total on that wreck. Wow. God, that's a lot. Well, maybe I should come back to you and talk to you about the wreck of the Empress of Ireland. So for our listeners, um, we uh, have featured the Empress of Ireland on our uh, Maritime Disaster series. So do please go and check that episode out. Um, so, John, now to the Andrea Doria. Yeah. Um, how did you get interested in that ship, particularly that wreck? Well, uh, when I took my basic scuba course in 1975, the guy who taught me took me to a dive show, put on by a, um, a group called the EDA, Eastern Divers Association. It was a diving club. And those were the, the guys who were diving on, on all the wrecks off of New Jersey at the time. And they went out and dove on the Andrea Doria uh, in, the, in the early 70s. And so when I'm at that dive show, I met a bunch of guys and they were telling me about this big giant ocean liner that was in 250 feet of water. Uh, it was like uh, the closest point of land was 50 miles from Nantucket Island. Uh, they were telling me that there were rough seas, that there were strong currents, uh, poor visibility. It was covered with nets, and uh, it was a big, big wreck over on its side, so it was easy to get lost in. And uh, but. With them telling me all about that, I wanted to go out and see it for myself. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the kind of thing that would make me not want to go and see it. I didn't <laughs> see it there. Well, uh, I mean, that's that's really the first time I heard about the Andrea Doria, and that's that's really uh, what got me started. So uh, that was in 1975, and then it took me about six or seven years to build up the experience to handle that that type of dive. So my first dive on the Doria was in 1982. Okay. And has the wreck changed much since then, since the 80s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, Let's go back to the 80s first off. So I mean, after yeah. the collision, she rolls on her side and then she sinks in 200 feet of water. Um, uh, does, the, does the vessel just kind of uh, end up like that on the seabed? What actually happened in the sinking process? Yeah, uh, well, it took 11 hours for it to sink. And immediately after the collision, it took on a 20-degree list. And uh, the collision happened at 11 o'clock at night. And overnight, the list increased, and then eventually it was over, all the way over on starboard side. Uh, about 10 o'clock the next morning, the bow sank first, went down bow first, and the bow, the ship is seven, 700 feet long. So the bow actually went down and hit the bottom, and then slowly the stern sank after that. And it's, so it's over 90 degrees on its starboard side. So the the decks back in the day were perpendicular to the seafloor. Um, when I first dove it in 1982, uh, the the funnel and 
bridge and two or three of the upper decks were already gone. So when when we hit the wreck, uh, we saw the, the big hull, which was intact, and the promenade deck and the upper deck were, were still intact. Uh, but like I said, the, the top decks were already gone. And it, it it stayed basically in that condition for, you know, 10 years. It didn't really, really change a whole lot. And then I guess into the 90s, early 90s, we started noticing more decks, more of the upper decks falling off. Um, in the early days, it had a uh, bridge wing on the port side. And we would use that as our landmark. When, when we saw that bridge wing, we knew exactly where we were on the wreck. But then one year we went out there, I forget what year it was, 94 or five or something like that. And that the bridge wing was, was gone and that section of the wreck had started to, to fall apart. And uh, in the eighties, uh, there, there was a, a small crack, maybe like two inches wide that ran from uh, right in front of the bridge uh, down the hull to to the uh, bottom of the hull. Uh, near, this is near the bow. And every year we could see that crack getting a little bit wider and wider. So now the entire bow has basically fallen off and that crack is like 20 feet wide. So it started like a couple inches and now it's uh, uh, about 20 feet wide. Amazing. Are there very strong currents down there? Uh, it, it changes. It varies. Uh, I mean, it depends on the tide and the current, and uh, in, in the and uh, the uh, current and the Gulf Stream. Uh, when the Gulf Stream comes in and gets closer to the wreck site, then the currents pick up. And again, it ch changes with the tide and the moon and and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, it goes everything from dead with no current at all to a ripping current uh, that's impossible to dive in. There, there's a lot of times we'll get out there and hook into the wreck, but the current is so strong, we just have to sit there and wait for the current to die down, down some. Yeah. I was reading about it being described as the Mount Everest of wrecks. Is that, is that a, a fair description? I, back early, early on, back in the day, because of all the hazards that I, that I uh, spoke yeah. about before. Uh, yeah, back then it, it was the Mount Everest of diving and that was about as deep as we were diving. Uh, that, that was a, a, a deep wreck at 250. Of course, nowadays they're diving twice that deep, but they have a lot more better equipment, more modern equipment. We didn't have rebreathers. Um, our first dives, uh, we had twin 80 cubic foot aluminum tanks. Uh, we were diving straight air and we were decompressing on air with uh, US Navy dive tables. And then um, uh, uh, later on in the 80s, we, we learned how to decompress on O2 and made it a little bit safer. And then in the early 90s, um, a guy named Billy Deans down in Florida, Key West, Florida, he uh, developed Trimix. Uh, and he did a lot of Trimix diving down in Florida. And he came up to dive 
the New Jersey Rex, and he essentially introduced us in New Jersey to Trimix. So that would have been, I'm going to say, like 92, I think. So for those of the, those who don't know, could you just explain what the advantages of that are? Uh, well, with Trimix, it, it has a heal, it's a helium mixture. So it offsets the effects of nitrogen and essentially eliminates uh, nitrogen narcosis. So that, that's the biggest benefit of it. So when, we're, when we were diving it on air, uh, yeah, we were totally narked out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we survived. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Some some didn't though. I mean, it's uh, there seem to be many deaths on the wreck. It, there have been. Uh, the latest count is eighteen over the wow. years, and um, it's been a, a variety of reasons. Uh, no, no one reason. Uh, a, a lot of the guys really shouldn't have been there. They just didn't have the the experience to dive on a deep wreck in the North Atlantic, and they weren't accustomed to the conditions uh, because uh, the water's cold, uh, usually about in the low 40s on the wreck. And uh, at least one of the divers, that was his first cold water dive. So I think that uh, affected him. Uh, A couple of the guys got lost inside the wreck somehow. some of the guys, we, you know, we don't know exactly what what happened. Uh, they hit the hit the surface without decompressing, but uh, some of it it's speculation as to exactly what happened. So it's, yeah, it's a, a variety of reasons. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I must have been very bewildering down there, having it on its side and then easy to get disorientated. It, it is easy. Um, I mean, when, when you hit the hull, it's just this big, massive hull, like two football fields. So if you don't have a landmark like uh, the, the uh, bridge wing, for example, mm. you know, you just see hull going out in every direction. So you don't even know which way to swim. Uh, and if you're away from the anchor line and you get turned around, 
on the hull, yeah, it's very easy not to find the anchor line at, at the end of the dive. Uh, going inside the wreck, yeah, of course, when you go in, start to go inside, your visibility is usually pretty good, but it gets uh, sil- it's very silty inside, and as soon as you kick in or pick up some uh, artifacts or something inside, it kicks up the silt and you can find yourself in zero visibility, you know, instantly. Um, usually, uh, we don't run a line. We, we swim in and essentially memorize the route in and out. Uh, a lot of times you just have to feel your way out uh, because the visibility gets so bad. Uh, other times when when we were working an area, making multiple dives in one specific area of the wreck inside, then yes, we would run run a line to that area, set up strobes and everything because we we knew we were going going in and out. Sounds completely terrifying. I'm quite happy if you stop talking about it now. <laughs> Let's talk about the artifacts. I mean, you said, um, you know, picking up artifacts. It's also easy to forget with the ship sinks like that. I mean, it's in, it, it was in pristine condition when it went down. It wasn't destroyed by a bomb or, you know, and by destruction in the war. So, sure, there was, um, there was a collision, but a lot, a lot of the ship was in excellent, excellent condition. Um, so tell me about some of the artifacts that you've come across. Yeah, um... So uh, we've gotten a lot of dishes in China and silverware. Uh, we, we made a lot of dives into the, into the first class dining room. And to, to get there, uh, there were some doors on the port side hull that were cut off by some early divers. Uh, so we would drop down in that hole and get down to the about 200 foot level and then there was a corridor that you swim aft, and that would put you in the first-class dining room. And we just found piles of dishes in China, and then we found some cabinets and everything. But um, again, when when you swam into that dining room, the visibility could turn turn to zero. Really, uh, what what we would have to do is the floor, which is now the wall was linoleum. So when you were in there in zero vis, if you swam and got your hands on that linoleum floor, you knew you could follow that out and that would put you out to to the hole. But um, so we spent, we made a lot of dives in that, in that uh, dining room. And then eventually we found the second and third class dining rooms too. Uh, so, um, we got some nice uh, windows from the ship, from the uh, uh, Lido deck. Uh, big, they they weigh about seventy five pounds. They're brass brass framed, yeah. and uh, they opened like a car window. They they had a crank on it, so on when the ship was sailing, they turned the crank, and the actual window went up and down in in the window frame. So we we found a lot of them. Uh, of course, in 1985, uh, my friend Bill Nagel put together a trip to go out and look for the bell. And right, let's talk about the bell. Yeah. That's always important in the ship, right? Yeah. Where did you find it? Did you find it? I don't well, want to well, spoil the story. Yes and no. <laughs> uh, our plan was to go out and look look for the, the, the main bell. And, of course, bells are usually found in the bow of the ship. 
So we went out there, uh, we anchored into the bow, and we spent three days in the bow searching for the bell. Um, uh, before we go any farther, uh, on that dive, I, I was on the trip, but I wasn't able to dive on that on that trip because a week prior to going out, we were testing a, a Broco torch in about 190 feet of water on another wreck. And I ended up getting bent and getting, you know, the whole evacuation by Coast Guard and into the chamber. So I couldn't dive for, for a while after that, but I went on, went on the trip anyway. So, um, we made the, they made three, di uh, three days of diving in, in the bow, looking for the bell. We found the bell Davit, but no bell was hanging in it. So then, uh, Gary Gentile had this idea to move to the stern of the wreck because on a lot of ships, there's an after steering station in the stern and sometimes they have a bell. So we moved, moved down to the, moved to the stern of the wreck and yeah, we, we found a bell there. Uh, it weighs about 140 pounds. It, brass or bronze and uh, has the name Andrew Doria 1952 on it. So we, we did recover that. How do you get it up to the surface? Uh, uh, it was hanging in a, in a davit. So what, what we did was that night we found it one day and overnight we actually knitted a, a big net out of rope and we took the net down and and wrapped that around the bell, put a, a lift bag on the net and knocked the pin out. And then we, so we sent the bell up in this net on a lift bag. So Great stuff. it worked. Well, well done. And um, tell me about these ceramic panels, which you've raised as well. They, these sound wonderful because um, again, for those of us, those of you who are listening um and haven't listened to the first episode do please listen to the first episode because we described the ship and it was a it was a floating art gallery wasn't it it, it was it, it was advertised as, as a floating art gallery uh it was filled uh, with paintings and murals and sculptures and had a, a life-size bronze statue of admiral andrea doria on board mm. uh so um, yeah, I, I knew about the artwork on board. And, of course, all the paintings and murals, uh, they were long gone. But, uh, you know, I thought these ceramics might still be in, in good shape. So uh, I knew about them, but I didn't know where they were on, on, exactly on the ship. So uh, I had contact with some people in Italy who had worked for Ansaldo and actually designed and built built the ship. Uh, so he sent me a photograph of the panels. So I was able to look at the photograph and I matched that up with the deck plans. So I knew exactly where these panels would, would have been on the ship. So, but I didn't know if they would still be there on the wreck because who knows. So uh, my friend Billy Deans came up from Florida and we made a dive into the ship's winter garden where I thought the panels would be. Uh, the winter garden was, was a, a lounge in the first class section of the ship. 
So we swam into the Winter Garden, and we found the two panels. Uh, they had kind of they had broken free, and were li- lying on the interior wall, which is now the floor of the wreck. Uh, so they were lying there. Uh, so we checked them all out. Of course, I couldn't raise them on that trip. I wasn't prepared for that. So we came back in, and later on, uh, I put the team, uh, a team of divers together. Uh, I called up about 12 of my best friends who happened to be the best divers, uh, in my opinion, in the world at the time, uh, all experienced with the Andrea Dorian deep, deep wreck diving. And I chartered a boat, uh, the RV Wahoo, which I knew had experience uh, taking divers to the Doria. And uh, so I took this team out and uh, we had 20 people on board total with cooks and topside crew and captains and whatnot. And the plan was to go down and, and raise the panels. And so, yeah, we, we went in, uh, we rigged them up with uh, heavy lifting straps. Uh, they were in the winter garden. You had to swim in about uh 20 or 25 feet to get to the panels so and there was an opening back behind that so uh we had to rig them up inside uh and put a lift bag on them and get them neutrally buoyant and raise them up just a little bit and then we guided them down until they were underneath the opening in the wreck and then inflate the bag more and then send them up to the surface so we're, there, there were two panels. Where are they now? Uh, right now I have them in storage, but uh, I have had them on display. Uh, I've done several Andrea Dory exhibits, artifact exhibits uh, in Philadelphia and New York. And uh, so, I, yeah, I ha- I've had them on display. My goal is eventually to have a, a f- uh, full-time, a permanent uh, artifact exhibit somewhere and have them have them on display. So and uh, that's my philosophy with with artifacts. Uh, you know, the, there's people that say shipwrecks should be preserved and left left alone, but it, it, anybody that that goes wreck diving knows that the, these wrecks are falling apart and they're deteriorating. And if the wreck if the artifacts aren't recovered they're going to eventually be lost forever. Nobody's ever, ever going to see them. So I, I like to bring the artifacts up. I, I've done dozens of artifact displays and exhibits, uh, and the general public, I, I think, really enjoys seeing all this stuff that, that we've brought up. And then yeah. um, so that we, we recovered the Gambone panels in 1993, and by 1996, when we went back out to the wreck, the winter garden where the panels were was completely gone. It, it had deteriorated, fallen apart, and was just a giant pile of rubble. So if we hadn't recovered those panels when we did, they would have been lost and, and nobody would, would have ever seen them. So. Yeah. What about more personal items? Have you come across anything that's more personal to the the, uh, the crew or the, uh, the passengers on board? Uh, actually, on my very first dive on the wreck, 
Uh, of course, remember, the ship was scheduled to dock 7 o'clock the morning uh, after the collision. You know, it was heading, heading into New York. So it's going to... So everybody had all their bags packed and they were ready to be offloaded. So um, on my very first dive on the promenade deck, uh, I was swimming along and I found two silver jewelry boxes that were, weren't part of the ship's uh, uh, outfitting. It, it, they bl- must have belonged to a passenger, but they're, they're not very ornate silver jewelry boxes uh, that somebody must have bought in Italy and we were bringing them home. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, there's no way I could track down who they belong to. If if I could have, I would have and, uh, you know, returned them. But uh, that's that's one of the, the personal items that, that I've recovered. Well, it's been a wonderful story hearing it all from you, John. Thank you very much indeed for sharing it today. Uh, yes, sir. It's been my pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please don't let this be the last thing you do to interact with the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Go back to our brilliant back catalogue and check out a huge range of maritime history. Yes, we have our mini-series on maritime disasters, but if you're interested in technology or myths and legends or iconic ships or shipbuilding, there's something there for you. Please also don't just listen to the podcast, but please check out all of the fantastic videos on the YouTube page where there's loads and loads of wonderful material, including the use of artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads alive. Yes, that's an actual sentence. Uh, The animation of battle plans, the use of 3D modelling and the animation of some wonderful documents bringing maritime technology straight out of the past to you in a completely new way. You will not believe your eyes, I promise you. Please also note that the podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So do please check out everything that both institutions are doing. The Lloyd's Register Foundation's Archive and Education Centre can be found at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join the Society. Please do so and become part of a society that has been helping to preserve maritime history for well over a century and if you're a member you get to come to the annual dinner on board HMS Victory and that is something you will never ever forget. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.